Next week, Wednesday night, we are going to have a showing of the film Heart of Man in this space from 8 till 10. We're kicking off a new series um, called Grace and Truth, and we've been looking at the questions that Jesus asks people. We're going to take a five-week break in here and talk about one of the, a series of some of the greatest questions of our time pertaining to sexuality and how the church is supposed to declare truth and yet not use it as a weapon and feel grace-filled in the same time at a time when it seems like the only thing that cannot be tolerated is intolerance and a firm grasp on truth. And you stand at a very particular moment um, in history where we have to learn how to do that well in order to be great ambassadors for Jesus today. And so we're going to be walking through these conversations the next number of weeks and also creating certain events on campus that create the opportunity to do this. So I want to challenge and invite every man on campus to come and join us at 8 p.m., um, next week, Wednesday night, in this space, and we'll have a showing of the film, Heart of Man. And in fact, uh, Gail Ashmore will be speaking for all women interested in a similar and corresponding event in West Commons at the exact same time. So hopefully that will be a blessing and kind of further some of these conversations along. This is the cover of the book we'll be um, working out of. I would really encourage you, if you're at all interested, um, talk to Sam Ashmore, talk to myself, Swing by Student Services, and we're going to run some short-term small groups over the next five weeks, just giving us a chance to enter into these conversations. The subtitle, if you can't read it from where you're at, is Five Conversations Every Thoughtful Christian Should Have About Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. And then when this came out, then the next set of questions came. So then Preston Sprinkle wrote um, Grace and Truth 2.0, which was the next five questions. Recently, I saw somebody had messaged him and asked them, what's 3.0 going to be? Like, what are the next questions that we should be prepared for. And he started listing off the ones that we are going to have to face and navigate through as followers of Jesus, developing a biblical, healthy sexual ethic. And the first two that he listed off that will come out in 3.0 is how do we respond in a world that's promoting polyamory, and what are we going to do inside of a world that's now participating in robotic porn sex participation? Um, so this is the kind of troubling landscape that we're in today and how we have to find out what it means to be a follower of Jesus with a bold but beautiful voice in a very difficult time. And yet more often than not, we seem more interested in the voice of what we're supposed to speak to others before we're interested in the voice of the Spirit speaking to us. And this is one of the problems that's hampered our Christian witness on this topic. Sprinkle talks about it in the book. This is one of the main reasons young people are leaving the church is over how Christians have mistreated or failed to love LGBT plus people. The evangelical church is about to lose an entire generation of Christians over how it has handled or mishandled this conversation. And I guess on behalf of the church and the generations that have gone before you this morning, it's probably appropriate to start with an apology. I'm sorry. And that is the correct Canadian way to pronounce that, by the way. Sorry. <laughs> we have botched this up for so many different reasons, and these are just a few of them. We don't know what to say. It's hard to talk about this. We're afraid of what your sexuality means. As a parent today with my own kids growing up, it's really hard to address the fact that all of a sudden your own children... Um, move into adolescence, go through puberty, and start to develop their own sexuality as part of an image-bearing of God. And it's hard as a parent, it's hard as the older generation to know how to navigate that in a really respectful way. It's also hard for us because we're poor models of this because we weren't taught well ourselves. 
The church and our schools and our parents did not talk well about our sexuality, did not know how to reconcile our sexuality and our Christianity. And many of them have stories much like mine where our Christianity and our sexuality grew up schizophrenic. They weren't even talking to each other. They were complete separate parts of our being. And trying to bring that back together has not been easy for a lot of us. These are hard and awkward conversations. Who likes to talk about their own brokenness? Who likes to talk about their own secrets or the blackness of the places where we're tempted? And we have our own sexual issues and hang-ups. We are fully aware deep inside how hypocritical it is when we sit down with somebody else and start trying to tell them about what it means to be righteous and pure and holy when it comes to their sexuality, when we know full well the thoughts that have occupied our minds, the desires and the lusts that we have experienced, this, the maladaptive sexual behaviors that we have developed over the course of our own lifetime, and the secret sins that exist inside all of us that nobody else knows. See, we're fully aware that there is not one who is without sin that is ready or able or capable of casting the first stone. And so it's really hard to enter into this conversation. We're aware of the hypocrisy that lies within us. And so it usually silences us. We don't know what to do with it. And so when this is all added up together, typically the church has just avoided this topic. And yet it's so important to our discipleship. Are there many things that plague us more in the quiet and in the secret? Is there a greater tool right now in the arsenal of Satan in the kingdom of darkness that is tripping up Christians more than in our sexuality? 24-7 prayer week last week, I went upstairs and I'm walking through the prayer room and I'm trying to pray the students' prayers that have all been left there. And as I look at everything pinned on the cross, the majority of them, like not just more than any other topic, like more than the other topics combined, were prayers about impure thoughts and lust and pornography and getting tripped up in this way. And my heart breaks for all of us in that. You see, we're also beginning to find out, and statistics are bearing this, that the schools and the places and the Christian institutions that are capable of prov proving out a sticky faith that stays is the places where people are allowed to have the hard conversations. And I have no doubt that in the next five weeks as we go through this, there will be times where you leave chapel more confused than when you got here. But I am not going to apologize for that. Jesus seemed to do really well in his questions of being able to leave things unresolved at times because not everything wraps up in a 20-minute message. And your sexuality is not going to be completed and fully resolved and fully dealt with at the end of 20 minutes or at the end of five weeks. And you're going to have to live in this tension not only in this culture, but inside your own being and your own thoughts for the rest of your life. But we need to learn how to live there well and in obedience. And that's what this is about. Together, though, we're facing a hypocrisy crisis as Christians. We want to speak so loudly to a world about a healthy Christian sexual ethic, and yet our divorce rates are just as high, if not higher. Our sexual sins and addictions and pornography usage is just as high, if not higher. Our rates of incest and stuff are the same inside the church as they are outside. All of these things seem to be the same, and we're not letting the transforming resurrection of power of Jesus touch one of the most vulnerable parts of who we are. And our voice will continue to be hampered in this world if we do not first look at the log in our own eye. And so any movement of revival or renewal always starts with humility and with introspection. 
It starts with prayer and it starts with repentance. It starts with a bunch of people who put up their hand and say, Jesus, me first, start with me. And we will never have the credibility of voice if we don't first do that together. What is unwanted sexual behavior? And I'm borrowing from Jay Stringer's book, Unwanted. Any negative sexual behavior that continues to persist in our lives despite our best efforts to change it, things like pornography usage, um, the prevalence of hookup culture, sexting, lust, promiscuity, compulsive sexual behavior. I'll give you some examples. 64%, 64% of 13 to 24-year-olds intentionally watch porn at least once a week. If I were to ask computer services and those who install filters at Dort University, I, would, I could guarantee you our numbers are not different than the rest of the general population. We, so this is our struggle. 62% of young adults have received a sext. We have taken the image of God in people and through our own digital platforms figured out how to objectify it, to steal the humanity from them, to steal the humanity from ourselves, to take one of the greatest gifts of connecting and intimacy and cheapen it into something that is just stilled pictures or video on a screen. One of my great laments for, for this generation is almost all of us today have grown up experiencing things digitally before we have in the real world. People have seen hardcore pornography before they've reached out and felt the butterflies in their stomach of holding somebody's hand on a first date. That's not the way that that was supposed to happen. We have so much ground to reclaim when it comes to this. 41% of teens today have sent a sex, actively participated in sexualizing their relationship digitally in conversation with somebody else. Some more stats from the book. Porn usage will nearly double the probability of a couple getting divorced. In fact, in the last number of years, divorce has been listed in over 60% of all divorce filings as one of the reasons for the dissolution of the relationship. Approximately 35% of all internet downloads are porn-related. And look at this. Porn sites receive more monthly traffic than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter put together. Nobody wants to admit it, but this is our favorite form of entertainment. But nobody's talking about it. At least not in healthy ways. Porn is almost a $100 billion industry. That's bigger than the four big sports put together in terms of our entertainment industries. That's insane. And this is plaguing so many of us and so many of our churches and our children. And as I want to get across to you, Christians are not immune. We're not talking about somebody else. We're talking about us. 57, over half of our pastors, almost two-thirds of our youth pastors struggle or have struggled with pornography. We keep acting like it's a problem to be able to raise a hand and say, this is a struggle of mine, yet the reality is it's so prevalent, it's actually the majority. We don't even know what to do with those who come forward. We whisper about them, we shame them, most typically in our churches. Bible says there's greater repentance in heaven when even one sinner repents, right? Greater rejoicing in heaven when even one sinner repents, but we don't mimic heaven. We copy our world. We shame people for their sexual sins even when they want deliverance from them. That's problematic. This isn't just a guy thing only. 28% of online porn viewers. Some stats say as many as one in every three visits to an adult site is by a woman. 
the female brain in its composition is changing. We live in a different time than before. It's not just that men are visual and women are not. And there's even a greater shame level for women to come forward and say, this is something that I'm struggling with in life, especially in the church. Compounding this problem is a greater cultural conversation right now we're having today in confusion around LGBTQ plus issues. Gender orientation. We struggle to know how to respond. We're, just, we're at a loss for words, and it's why these conversations are so important. And these people in the margins who don't feel like they belong, and especially don't belong in the church, listen to some of the tragic realities around them. LGBTQ young adults reporting high levels of family rejection are more than eight times more likely to attempt suicide, five times more likely to be clinically depressed, three times more likely to use illegal drugs, three times more likely to have unprotected sex. In many ways, these are some of the most vulnerable people in our communities. And Christians, instead of running towards this, are often putting up walls and keeping this out. The very people who claim that Christ is what transforms everything, and that being in the body of Christ is the place where people need to be, are the same people who are putting up barriers, allowing people to access his presence in and through his people. I get that we want to maintain holiness, but what does it really mean to be obedient and look like Jesus in the middle of this. And this is what Sprinkle's trying to do in the book in terms of upholding grace, upholding truth, and putting these things together. There's never been a greater moment for us to return back to the model offered to us in the ministry of Jesus and how he engaged people who lived in the margins. Or even people who engaged in what we would refer to as deliberate chosen sins. Jesus invited prostitutes into his inner circle. But Jesus wasn't for prostitution. Jesus invited tax collectors to be his disciples. But Jesus wasn't for extortion. Jesus invited the marginalized to come and be part of him. Jesus risked so many things reputationally to invite that into his presence. In fact, Jesus would bring his presence to those places. Because there's no other name by which we can be saved. Because there's no greater transforming power than the love of God. Our broken sexuality affects so much of us. And yet it's so much of us that we don't want everybody else to see. It affects our identity and our relationships, how we understand God himself, and for many times our whole lives. I'm always amazed when I talk to people who have overcome different um, sexual behaviors that have owned them for a long time. They always tell me the same thing that when they're done or they're in a place of purity again, that they walk taller and they look people back in the eye and they forgot what it was like to walk with their head up again. You were made to walk with your head up. You were not made to be owned by sin. That's why this is so important for us to tackle. Because when we live in a place of shame, this has been one of Satan's greatest tools. It was the one when sin first entered and they were naked and ashamed so they hid. You see, our sexuality is like the early warning system, often, of the rest of our being. When sin came into the world, that's where we felt it first, you guys, in our sexuality. You know, you could take that passage and lead that to mean that the most vulnerable part of who we are could very well be our sexuality. That's where we felt sin first. And Satan's been using this tool ever since to shame us into silence and into hiding. We've been in hiding ever since Genesis chapter 3. We need to come into the light where we find healing. 
Stringer goes on in that book to say that the formative experiences of our childhood, and I want to articulate, sometimes not even chosen by us, but chosen for us through others. Things that we never asked for, but we're recipients of someone else's abuse. Things like loneliness, pain, sexual arousal, secrecy, and relational ambivalence are all being repeated in our unwanted sexual behavior as adults. And yet there was a time before we were awoken to the reality of our sexual identity where we were the innocence of childhood. And yet the love that God had for you before you ever hit puberty or ever had one single sexual thought has not changed. The adoration that God has for you does not change whatever you were thinking in the secret, whatever sin you've ever committed. The purity culture has told us that there's something that can be lost that can never be regained. And that's a horrible message to share for someone who died to reclaim all things. And it's an abuse of truth that the church needs to reclaim. If you feel like there's been some sexual sin ever in your life, you are not damaged goods. You are a redeemed son and daughter paid for at great price. That is your identity. And don't let Satan or a misused message within the church ever tell you otherwise. Now that's not a license to go out and do whatever we want. You know that full well. Anybody here who's ever committed any one of those sexual sins will be the first to tell you it didn't deliver what it had promised. And every sin is its own worst punishment. Because it's separation from what God invited us to be in the first place. You were created for intimacy. Made in the image of a relational God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect community. And to be made in His image is to long for that. The fact that you long to belong, that you long to be desired, isn't loneliness and it isn't brokenness. It's not that there's something wrong with you. That's a sign that you work. Congratulations, you were made in the image of God because you were not made to walk alone in this world. And so if you long for friendships and you long for intimacy, that doesn't mean you're broken. It means you bear the image of God. Because the Father is in love with the Son, and the Son is in love with the Spirit, and the Spirit is in love with the Father, and they all point to each other in this beautiful dance of love. And for you to be made in His image means that you need that too. When God said it is not good for man to be alone, that was before sin was in the world. Your desire for relationship and, and desire to be desired is not part of the fall. That was put in you before sin came there. That's part of your hardwiring into the image-bearing of who you are. You were created for intimacy. And yet we all know misery. I find it interesting in his book, Stringer spends some time reflecting on Heidelberg Catechism Question and Answer 3, which asks us, how is it that we come to know our misery? He says it's an odd question until you understand that the German word for misery is elen, meaning to be out of one's native land with a deep sense of homesickness. Doesn't that resonate? Whenever you feel the misery of your sexual temptations and your desires or you've acted on those, that's what we feel. Out of our native land, out of our image bearing, out of where we were created to be, out of a place of flourishing, with a deep sense of homesickness, a longing to get back. Sexual brokenness can feel so miserable precisely because deep within us is a belatedness that aches to return home. Anybody long to return home? Anybody ever even given up imagining what it would be like to live without sexual sin owning our thoughts and our lives? 
So often it seems in these conversations we're more despairing than anything else, hardly believing that that could even be possible. Like we talked about last week, we need a bigger imagination. Because the resurrection doesn't just stand at the beginning, at the middle of Jesus' story, it stands at the middle of yours. And new life and what he shares with us is ours as well. And when we run into other people and not just ourselves, Sprinkle puts it like this. Whenever Jesus encountered people who were engaged in sin, Jesus showed love. He loved people into obedience. Now notice that. This is, the, this is the Christian posture that needs to be taken in the world today. He loved people into obedience. Why? Because it's God's kindness that leads to repentance and not our repentance that leads to God's kindness. If you have ever been lied to by the evil one that you need to go and get your crap put together before God will love you again, that you need to go deal with that sin before you can return to right standing with God. That is a lie straight out of the pit of hell. It is a lie from the devil's mouth, the great accuser, and it is not truth, and it does not speak about you. That is not your identity. Jesus shows us this in the way he interacts with people who are in places of sin or caught up in these things. It's God's kindness that leads to repentance. Jesus spends his entire ministry teaching us that you're supposed to love everybody the same regardless of what they're doing. You are supposed to be the constant because you are supposed to stand on the constant truths of Jesus that stand the test of times. And truth is not a weapon that we wield against the rest of the world. Truth is the person of Jesus that other people are invited into relationship with. Jesus didn't come to use the truths of the Father to rail on people and make them feel bad about themselves and experience shame. That's Satan's tactic. Jesus came to be the embodiment of truth and an invitation into right living with him. That's the invitation. I'll give you one example of a story from Scripture and how Jesus interacts and lives this out. It's from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Sprinkle says, this is where you got to pause in the text. He was a chief tax collector. So tax collectors were working for Rome. So people come in, they conquer the nation. Israel is enslaved to them, and then they collect taxes from them to fund the Roman war machine so they can do this to even more people and cement their overlord presence over Israel. And so these are the Israelites who've sold out and actually agreed to be a participant in that system. Zacchaeus wasn't just a participant in that system. He'd sold himself so far in, he was in charge of it. There could not be greater traitors, greater Benedict Arnolds in Israel than chief tax collectors of the day. That's why they're talked about the way that they are. They collected taxes off of people to fund the enslavement of them for their own family members and their own friends. But Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he couldn't see over the crowd, so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this. Is it an accident that Jesus did this in front of the crowd? So everybody could see what it looks like to have a different way modeled before them. There are times where Jesus te tells people to be very quiet. Don't tell anyone what God has done for you. Right? This whole notion of the messianic secret. But when Jesus engages sinners, it's not a quiet hiding activity. It's a public one. 
But they all began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Jesus was really bad at building a good reputation. You ever notice that? Interestingly enough, Sprinkle talks later in the chapter that you'll know that Christians have engaged the LGBTQ plus conversations, right, when we become so chummy with people that people start to question our own integrity. He said that will be the measure that the church is actually doing it well. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is the son of Abraham. Because those people too are children of the living God. Because those people too are children of a living God. For the Son of Man came to tell a bunch of people who already had it figured out to keep doing what they were doing. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Jesus has a mission statement embedded in this. This is so important to him. Sprinkle summarizes it like this. Zacchaeus repents. And he turns from his sin. He does what every Christian wants to see happen at the end of the story. But notice the order. Jesus doesn't demand it first. What is it that brings about transformation and change? He does. He turns from his sin. He desires to be holy. But it wasn't Jesus' stance on extortion that motivated Zacchaeus' repentance. Jesus doesn't preach this message about how tax collectors are so terrible. It's Jesus' love that is welcoming. It was Zacchaeus' encounter with the unconditional acceptance of Christ. That's what creates the transformation. It's once people know that Jesus and his church are for them, and not just simply reacting against, where they find the ability to move forward in freedom. And that's not just true of them out there. That's true for us here. Every one of us that struggles. Every one of us. How else should beggars who found bread treat other beggars in search of bread? Paul names himself as a chief among all sinners. I would spend the rest of the time today and tell you all the sexual sins that I've committed in my life, but we wouldn't have enough time here today. You have to go to class in 23 minutes. And that's not just me. I could... We could take turns and every one of us could come up here and I'm sure it would be the same story. Isn't it odd that Christians can be such celebrative recipients of grace and such poor distributors of it? It hampers our witness. And it stands in the way of people's opportunity to meet Jesus and the model that he provides for us. So I want you to reflect on this with me as we close. Where does transformation come from? Number one, proximity to Jesus. You cannot experience transformation without the one who made you and knows where you're going. He's got the roadmap. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He's the resurrection. He's everything. And we weren't made to do that alone. It's only in an accepting, loving community that those things happen. Places like this. You guys, this is a sweet season of life. Whatever you are struggling with, come forward now. Now is the invitation. Now is the time. Repentance, this is what changes. Repentance is a change of direction in our lives. Prayer and a petitioning of the Father to invoke the work of the Holy Spirit to come into our lives and make us new and display His gifts and create His renewal within us. So these choices you make now will affect your future. 
And we want to continue this conversation on and invite you into it in new ways over the next several weeks. And so what I'm going to ask you to do next week when we come into chapel, and you'll understand why after you get here, I'm going to ask all the men to sit on this side and all the women to sit on this side of chapel. You'll understand next week when we do it why in terms of the message, but I want to invite you to do that. I'll put this screen up when you come in next time too, so you'll know where to sit and nobody will be confused. Um, But I want to invite you into that. Father, these are hard things. But you are greater. And our sin seems so daunting. But the light is brighter. And our pain is so real. The resurrection is more real still. So God, we just ask that you use this time and this little season here on campus in the midst of these conversations to do a work within us. We pray that some walls are going to come down. We pray that chains get broken in Jesus' name. We pray, pray that places where there have been strongholds for too long, um, your children are set free. We pray that the darkness is kicked at hard and that it backs up. We pray that your kids uh, reclaim um, a place of just understanding how beloved they are by you. We pray for freedom and repentance. We pray for prayers of renewal. We pray for conversations of accountability, of confession. Father, we pray that your spirit would just be moving through this. Do a work. Set people free in Jesus' name. In the only name that could ever make that happen. We pray. Amen. Please rise.